The first weekend after opening was a bank holiday. Despite pouring rain, several thousand visitors paid their sixpence, although, thanks to the weather, only about 15% actually ventured into the water. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. 2023 marks 100 years of our museums and collections, and we're celebrating by examining 100 intriguing objects that help tell the story of Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area. Today's object is a miniature version of a building that Morecambe locals might recognise. Although it no longer stands, from the 1930s it was an icon of the Morecambe prom. Today's object is a model of the Super Swimming Stadium. The model is made of silver, set on a wooden base painted dark green. You can see the stands ranged around the edge of the pool, and the water is represented by a textured surface to the silver. At one end you can see the diving boards, while the other features steps and a slide into the pool. On each end of the wooden base is a small metal crest of Morecambe, with the town's motto, Beauty Surrounds, Health Abounds, underneath. The model is large and heavy, measuring 45cm long by 28cm across. We spoke to Barry and Leslie Guise, who have researched the history of the Super Swimming Stadium for their book, In the Swim, Morecambe Super Swimming Stadium, to get more of the history of this fascinating building. We began by discussing our model and the information on the plaque at the front, which states that it was presented to Councillor Fay by the contractors when the stadium was opened on the 27th of July, 1936. Councillor Fay was chairman of what was called the Old Harbour Committee which was set up by Morecambe Council in the late 1920s to create a more attractive seafront for visitors. This involved the building of a new sea wall and promenade and the removal of the shipbreaking yard of T.W. Ward, which had occupied the old harbour site next to the stone jetty since 1904. During the 1920s, there was a growing interest in health and physical fitness. Sunbathing was becoming fashionable and many seaside resorts began to invest in sports facilities especially the construction of open-air swimming pools or lidos. In Lancashire, Blackpool led the way in 1923 with a huge outdoor pool which brought in thousands of people. Morecambe didn't want to get left behind and in 1927 the council chose a site on the foreshore opposite the Winter Gardens. It then held an architectural competition to select the best design. The £100 prize was won by a London firm of architects called Cross and Sutton. Their winning entry was set in a large basin behind the new seawall and promenade. It was rectangular in plan, with curved ends, with towers, domes and columns, and terraces for sunbathing. Unfortunately, the land was not owned by Morecambe Council, but by the London Midland Scottish Railway Company, and the council needed government authorisation to borrow the money to buy the land. Negotiations dragged on for six years, by which time the new Midland Hotel had appeared on the seafront prompting the architects to modify their design for the swimming pool to be more in keeping with a sleek, modern new neighbour. It then took another two years for the new seawall to be built, and it was not until October the 7th, 1935, that the Mayor of Morecambe could lay the foundation stone for the new pool. So after all these delays, how long did the stadium take to build? And what did people in Morecambe actually do at the stadium when it was open? 
Surprisingly, it only took nine months. Despite problems with leakages in the sea wall causing the site to flood and a run of bad weather, the swimming pool was ready for its opening ceremony on the 27th of July 1936. Huge crowds had gathered for the opening, but only a small proportion was able to get inside the building to see Sir Josiah Stamp, chairman of the London Midland and Scottish Railway, officially declare the baths open by switching on the cascade from which a spout of water bubbled up and streamed into the pool. As the pool was nearing completion, Morecambe Council decided to hold a competition to find an appropriate name, with a £5 prize for the winner. Hundreds of entries were sent in, including strange names like Friendship Harbour and Utopian Joy Pool. One man even suggested it should be called the Leo Pool, because Leo was the astrological sign on opening day. All were rejected, and the name chosen, Super Swimming Stadium, was suggested by the council's advertising manager, Harry Parker. Unfortunately for Harry, because he worked for the council, he was not allowed to claim the fiver. The first weekend after opening was a bank holiday, and despite pouring rain, several thousand visitors paid their sixpence admission, although, thanks to the weather, only about 15% actually ventured into the water. Obviously, the main purpose was swimming. People paid to swim there, despite the water inside being basically the same as that over the wall in the bay, just a bit cleaner. There was lots of sunbathing, and surprisingly, far more people sitting and actually watching The council soon realised that more swimmers would be tempted in if the water was a bit warmer, so they installed heating. But costs rose rapidly, and so it was turned off for longer and longer periods. And after about two years, it was hardly used at all. They used to put a notice outside saying what the water temperature was, but nobody ever believed it. Locals of a certain age might remember learning to swim there and getting their blue seagull badge for doing a length or even trying to join the exclusive Shiverers Club. That was those who, by hook or by crook, managed to be the first in the pool when it opened each season, when the water was really, really cold. The mention of a season is quite important. The baths were shut for more than six months every year, not bringing in any money. So when they were open, it was needed to make as much as possible, and swimming just didn't bring in enough. Something else was needed. With the stadium already in financial difficulty, Barry and Leslie told us about some of the other attractions put on at the stadium to help boost visitor numbers. There were two main attractions, the water shows and the Miss Great Britain competition. The first was the brainchild of an ex-professional diver called Leon Marco, who had appeared at the Super Swimming Stadium after the war, doing exhibition diving. In 1948, he had recently returned from the States, visiting New York, where he had seen elaborately staged water shows with hundreds of swimmers, divers, dancers and acrobats, all performing to an orchestral accompaniment. He wondered if such a show, on a smaller scale, might work in Morecambe. In July 1948, he trialled his idea at the swimming stadium, with exhibition diving, comedy sketches and a water ballet by nine female swimmers he called the Aqua Lovelies. The show was such a hit, the following year, Marco came up with a more ambitious production, The Great Water Spectacle of 1949. This ran daily for the whole season, providing Morecambe Council with a regular source of income. The next few years saw the water shows grow in popularity. Rather than pay outside producers, Morecambe Council decided to take it over, asking the then Bath Superintendent, George Campbell Cooper, to develop his own version. He called his show the Aqua Cascades. It had exhibition diving, synchronised swimming with the Aqua Lovelies, 
and madcap comedy routines from the Aquilunis, plus singers, dancers, magicians, trick cyclists, and even an Indian tightrope walker. Each year, the show had different geographical themes. The South Seas, Ancient Egypt, Greece, Italy, and so on. However, after Campbell Cooper's untimely death in 1965, the water show began to lose its appeal. And money. Rising costs and falling attendances convinced councillors to pull the plug, and the following year's show were the last to be held at the Super Swimming Stadium. One favourite diver, who became something of a celebrity, was called Perry Blake. His piece de resistance was to climb an extended ladder from the top of which he would launch himself in a graceful swallow dive to hopefully hit the water 75 feet below. But for many Morecambe residents, it was the second show put on the stadium that they remember most. Even more important was the Miss Great Britain contest. It started earlier than the Aqua shows and went on for longer. The first contest was in 1945, when the council wanted to cheer people up after the war and at the same time have an attraction that kept them ahead of their local rivals, Blackpool and Southport. They wanted something quite big but cheap. A beauty contest was ideal. There was no need to build anything new, just add a few prizes and people would pay to watch. The organisation fell to a Miss Dorothy Fisher who worked in the publicity department. She did such a good job that she ended up running it for nearly 30 years, all the time it was at the Super Swimming Stadium. Anybody involved in the contest certainly remembers Miss Fisher. The first contest was a small experimental affair. They had just five heats during the summer, followed by the final at the end of August. They didn't spend much on advertising, but thousands and thousands turned up to watch. For the final, it actually poured down, but the crowd still came with their umbrellas and mats and sat in the open to watch. There were six finalists. An extra one had been squeezed in due to audience demand at one of the heats. And it was this extra, an 18-year-old local called Lydia Reed, who walked away with the title National Bathing Beauty Queen. Nobody was actually called Miss Great Britain until the early 50s. Lydia also won a silver cup, which she had to give back, a swimsuit, a basket of fruit and the princely sum of seven guineas. That's £7.35. The council were delighted. They'd made lots of money and received welcome publicity. The contest became a permanent fixture on Wednesday afternoons. Businesses clamoured to be associated with it, offering prizes and sponsorship. Prize money shot up. It reached £1,000 in 1950. An entrance came from all over the country. Heats were held elsewhere. At one point, they'd got as many as 40 in the final. Leslie told us a little bit more about the women who took part in the competition. What was their experience and why did they want to be involved? Attitudes were very different when it all began. It was thought of as good, clean family entertainment. But basically for the girls, it was the money. And the possibility of being seen and maybe getting a job in modelling or in films or TV. Lydia's seven guineas might have seemed a bit measly, but it could have been the equivalent of a month's wages at the time. And the top prize of £1,000 in 1950 was far more than any normal working woman could ever earn in a year. 
There were smaller prizes for winning heats, even coming second or third. Some treated it like a summer job, going round from contest to contest, picking up prizes here and there and having a good time. Some did achieve their ambitions. The winner in 1950, who went by the very apt name of Violet Pretty, had set her heart on a career in films, so she put her £1,000 to good use. She took drama courses and elocution lessons, and she made it. She became a film star. Sadly, they persuaded her to change her name to the much plainer Anne Haywood. Another winner was Leela Williams, who made it onto TV as the first female presenter of Blue Peter. What they had to do to earn this sort of money was walk around the pool in a swimsuit, give a bit of a twirl, smile, possibly answer the odd question. They needed a flattering costume, but they weren't allowed to have any artificial aids. It was rumoured that Miss Fisher could spot a falsie at 50 yards. In the beginning, they wore all sorts. But after the first two winners, who'd worn white costumes, virtually everybody appeared in a white costume. Accompanied, of course, with the white stiletto. In order to show off your white swimsuit, you needed a tan. Well, back in the 50s, there was no such thing as artificial tans. So they used gravy browning. And there was no hair lacquer either, so your hair was fixed with sugar water. And we were assured by one of the contestants that the smell in the changing rooms was appalling. <laughs> by about 1970, attitudes had certainly changed. Women had better opportunities and the prize money didn't seem to be so good, especially when you were forced to give up your job for a year to be Miss Great Britain. Society in general found the contests all rather demeaning. Um, there were protests in the Miss World contest. People lost interest, attendances fell. It became a money loser instead of a money spinner. The last final in the stadium was in 1973. After that, problems with the structure stopped its use. So in the 1970s, the two big shows were gone and the building itself was facing problems. Barry finished our story off by explaining the final fate of the Super Swimming Stadium. Towards the end, late 60s, early 70s, the stadium was showing its age. The terraces were shabby, with rotting steps, peeling paintwork and crumbling concrete. Out of sight, major steel supports underneath had badly corroded and needed strengthening with wooden props. In 1973, sections of the terracing had to be cordoned off as they were considered a danger to the public. In spring 1974, a major leak appeared, causing the loss of thousands of gallons of water. The council was getting worried and commissioned a number of surveys by structural engineers, all of whom found the building to be in a dangerous state. It would be prohibitively expensive to repair and demolition was recommended. Some councillors refused to accept this assessment and it took two years of wrangling and 47 meetings before a motion was finally passed to demolish the stadium. In November 1976, the bulldozers moved in and by the following spring, Morecambe Super Swimming Stadium was no more. Thank you so much for diving into Morecambe's history with us today. We hope you will enjoy some of our other episodes where we talk about everything from shipbuilders to suffragettes.